Welcome to Harnessing Your Wealth with Billy Peterson. As the founder and CEO of Peterson Wealth Services and a former number one ranked jockey, Billy knows what it takes to succeed. In this podcast, Billy and his team will help equine enthusiasts, business owners, and retirees understand the keys to financial freedom. Saddle up and get ready for a ride you won't soon forget on how you can harness your wealth. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Harnessing Your Wealth. I think you're going to enjoy today's conversation. We have Wayne Bennett, gifted estate attorney. Welcome to the show, Wayne. Good morning. Thanks, Billy, for having me. You're welcome. Glad to have you here. Along for the ride will be Sean, and he's going to have some questions and comments to hopefully keep things light and keep things moving. Those of you who know Sean would expect nothing less. So let That's me what jump- I'm here for, Bill. Yes, Thank you. Yes, sir. That's why we invite you back time and time again. Let me start by asking Wayne to introduce himself, and let's get into this show. Tell us about your background and how you got started in law and maybe some of the firms you've worked with and the types of clients that you serve, Wayne. All right, great. Well, again, thanks for having me. Uh, I've been practicing law in Salt Lake for 23 years now. I graduated law school at the University of Idaho and then got a what they call an LLM or a master's in tax from Georgetown Law Center in Washington, D.C. In, in 1999. Uh, I moved out here and worked with Brett Paulson originally at a firm called Richards, Brandt, Miller, Nelson. He was my mentor, and uh, eventually he retired and moved on. I've since moved on as well, and I now practice at the law firm of Clyde Snow and Sessions in downtown Salt Lake. Fantastic. What What's the primary background of your business? What types of clients do you work with? When I first came out of college, well, when I went to college at Utah State, I got a degree in accounting. I always knew I wanted to go to law school and, and dovetailed that with the tax background at Georgetown. So most of my clients uh, originally started as, as, frankly, small business owners, uh, people who, who were in business for themselves and either needed some good business planning or they needed some estate planning or they needed both. And I found that when they, when they come to me, I'm able to kind of marry the two together so that they have a good business plan. Uh, eventually, they'll have a good succession plan that ties into their estate plan. And uh, along the way, some of those business owners may decide to sell their businesses or, or, or you know, move away from that. And I can help them with that as well. But most of the time, uh, it, it, it's business owners that also need some kind of estate planning uh, assistance. Gotcha. So the, the conversation that we're going to have today for the listeners is framing a lot of this around the estate planning component. Most people are going to need some sort of an estate plan. Most everyone has an estate, right? So it's it's the process of determining how you want your estate to be passed on, how you want to transfer your wealth and so we're talking talking a lot about harnessing your wealth. That's the name of this show. And what I mean by harnessing your wealth is basically taking control of it, having some ability to dictate what happens to you in your life with regards to money and building your money and seeing it work for you. But then eventually we're all going to die. 
So this is the unfortunate part of the conversation, and very few people want to engage in this because it's morbid. And uh, we have a lot of clients who have substantial net worths, and I can think of several who've even passed on who refuse, absolutely refuse to even talk about their estate plan because you know they never ever truly believed they were going to die. But when if we get if we jump into this, I think the first question that comes to mind is, and most people ask when we're starting an estate plan, they've heard of a couple of terms, will, trust. Will you tell us the difference and what these different assignments mean for people who are appointed? Yeah, sure. So most people think that that a will a will can get you there and 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 is kind of a one and done type of a document. In my practice, I use the will to achieve two or three goals, typically. First, I use the will to assign or kind of direct what I want done with with the body, essentially. What are the burial instructions going to be? Who's going to be in charge? Uh, Then I move on, and, and the will typically will dictate what happens to my tangible property, the things I can put my hands on, Uh, you know, if if it's in the barn, it's something that's probably tangible. If it's in the basement, if it's your baseball cards or your Barbie dolls that you had when you were six, those are all things that the will is really good at giving away. Finally, the will is pretty good at, at, at also directing who might be in charge of minor children, designating guardians uh, in case you die prematurely and, and have young ones still at home. Uh, beyond that, I like to move on to the trust. So the will really from start to finish, it really doesn't come into play until you die. And frankly, if it's still being looked at 90 days later, then something's probably wrong because that's really kind of a short-term document. The trust is the document that you really want to, to act like a basket. And it can be more like a, like a cornucopia of assets. Everything you've got that has a title to it, that has a, a, a designation, uh, some kind of an account number, or some kind of a business interest, those all really belong in some sort of a trust. Uh, the reason for that is it it will av- avoid a probate, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about that here in a minute. It also organizes things, and you talk about uh, you know, organizing your estate, the wealth that you've collected. The trust is the best way to organize that and have it ready to be passed on to the next generation uh, when you meet your inevitable demise. <laughs> nice. What about, um, sometimes we say the term trust in our office and clients, they, they clam up a little bit. They feel like they're going to lose control. Does someone lose control when they create a trust of their assets? You know, 99% of all trust created, at least in my practice, uh, the, the person who created the trust walks out the door in absolute control of everything in the trust. There are times uh, you can get into kind of exotic trusts where you're, you're stashing away assets. You know, this is your, your Cayman trust or something like that that's intended mm-hmm. to be to hide assets from everyone, including yourself. I don't generally get into those. Most people don't. They don't need them. Uh, but where, where, where you do the trust with me and you've got basically uh, an estate planning trust, you're going to walk out, you're in control of every penny you put into it. You can take it out, you can spend it, you can give it away, you can do whatever you want with that money and, until you can no longer think about it. You know, I like to say that you're in control. 
even you can make even changes to those trusts if you want, right up until the point where you can't call either your, yourself or me and have a conversation about getting it changed. Nice, nice. What about some of the terms like you hear personal representative or trustee? Maybe tell us a little bit more about what those mean and responsibilities of those people. Perfect. All right. So the personal representative, or sometimes you'll hear the word executor, those apply specifically to the will. So under a will, you have a personal representative and under a trust, you have a trustee. So the hat worn by the trustee under the trust, that's the person that's in charge of your, your assets when you die. Uh, that may not be the person who's your personal representative. It may not be the person you designate as the guardian for your minor children. We all know people who are really good at raising kids, but terrible at dealing with money. Yes, we do. And we, <laughs> and we know people who are really good at handling money, but terrible with kids. <laughs> that makes no sense if you're no good with kids to make you the guardian of minor children. And it makes no sense if you're no good with money to put you in charge of a bunch of money. And what if you're no good at either one? Then you should, <laughs> you need a new friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> new career path. Okay. Thank can you, I have, Mike. can I have um, multiple trustees? I know that comes up a lot when you have, uh, you know, children. Is it one child? Is it a, a team of them? Can people pick and choose? People can absolutely pick and choose. Uh, I prefer one, uh, but sometimes we do trustee by committee. Uh, obviously, you start talking about, well, do you have two or three? And if you've got two, will they get deadlocked if they disagree? Mm -hmm. uh, if you have three, will someone get their feelings hurt if they're always voting no and <laughs> the other two are teaming up on them? Every family is different and the dynamics in every family uh, is absolutely different and kind of dictates who or what the best kind of a trustee model will be. And I tend to, I like to talk to my clients about that and, and work through it. Uh, I'll say that we've represented over 300 clients in helping them facilitate their estate plan up to this point with our firm. And one of the most common issues that is raised is the lack of trust or lack of confidence, I should say, with children being named as the successor trustees in, let's say, with just one or maybe two, if they have multiple children, let's say they have three, four, five children, almost inevitably there's one or two that they don't have confidence in. So what's what's the answer there? Or even if they don't have confidence in any of their children and they're worried about them just spending the assets down, what do you recommend? Well, again, that's part of the conversation, right? With the, with the people creating the trust. Uh, I found that most of the time when there's multiple children and there's one or two that aren't going to be good with money and there's maybe one or two that are, the kids know who, the, who they are. You know, most of the time they're adults and they know if they're good with money or not. And they're not really surprised when their older brother or younger sister is named as the trustee and they're not, they got skipped for some reason. Uh, we can eliminate some of that and there's all kinds of ways of doing it, but uh, you know, it's not uncommon. I've, I've seen people say, look, look, I want the oldest child and the youngest child, and then we'll work to the middle. And, and that way we've got, you know, the full range of the generation kind of represented. That's one model way of doing it. 
Sometimes there's a family friend that can come in and, and break ties. So you'll have two children named and then you'll have a kind of a third party temporary or part-time trustee that'll come in and, and break any deadlock that might, might be in place. Uh, sometimes there's a, a commercial trustee. If, if you're just not going to get along or have kids that are going to get along, then it, you look at someone that, that might be a corporation or a bank that can step in and be trustee. I know through your office, uh, Raymond James will do that. And, uh, and we've named, you know, working with your clients over the years, Billy, we've probably named Raymond James a dozen times. Mm-hmm. For sure. Right. Yeah. That's something that happens with people who just have maybe lack of confidence or just maybe want to have some oversight. You know, very few people grow up learning these concepts and how to handle money. So we understand that's an issue occasionally. It's, uh, it's always kind of funny to see. I see it quite often, actually, where the, the parents really don't seem to like their kids or trust them. <laughs> but the grandkids can do no wrong, right? And, yeah. <laughs> And you wonder who's raising those grandkids if it's not the good for nothing children. So what about that with, with younger, young, say a younger couple, they've got young kids and they're putting together a plan with you. I mean, how do you protect a, a younger person from, you know, coming into a lot of money and, and blowing it, let's say, I mean, are there provisions or something you can put in a trust document for younger younger children or grandchildren even? Sure. So let me, let me answer that question by starting first with the will. If you, if you don't do the trust or if you don't have a will or a trust uh, and, and you die prematurely leaving young children, the, the money gets locked up in a, in a savings account for the child, learning, earning little or no interest until they're 18. And then at 18, they get it and they can do whatever they want with it. The problem with that, as you guys know, is if they're really young, let's say they're 10 years old, they've really lost maybe eight years of growth in any kind of a market or any kind of strategy, investment strategy, because mm-hmm. uh, it's just earning one or 2% if you're lucky at the bank. And then at 18, if it's a large sum of money, you know, just think back yourselves. If you'd inherited even a half a million dollars at 18, what would you have done? You know, Ferrari. It, it yeah. would have been red and gone fast, right? Race horses. horses. <laughs> Billy, Billy would have bought a horse and Sean would have bought a car. Um, Mine's an investment, at least yeah. in my mind. Right. <laughs> so the, the, advantage, the only way really around that is to trust up the money and, and to have that trust established to, to dole out the money over time uh, once, the, once the kids get to a more responsible age. Uh, you'll see quite often kind of the starting point in the conversation with me and my clients is, you know, and, and with, with myself and my own kids, uh, we started and said, look, if you're 25 and we die, you're going to get a third of your inheritance. And then at 30, you'll get half of what's left, you know, and then at 35, you get the rest. Um, that's pretty common. You'll see that a lot. Other people will, will tie to, events in life. So they'll say, look, if you graduate from college, not only will we help you pay for college, but maybe we'll give you a quarter million dollars when you graduate just to incentivize you. And then if you decide to buy a house, you know, maybe there's another 
chunk of money that's coming your direction so that you can beat the the purchase the, the mortgage insurance um marriage also tends to show up in that kind of a list you know maybe we'll give you 50 or hundred thousand dollars if you get married to kind of get you started there's some motivation yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh and then you know and then typically i like to try and end the the trust at 35 maybe 40 years old i've got you know, I know some people out there and some estate planners, they'll push that out to 50 or 60. And frankly, I've had people come in and say, look, I worked really hard for my money and I worked all my life and my kids are going to have to work too. So they can inherit it when I'm 65 or when they're 65. Mm -hmm. I, I don't really like that plan. You know, that give it to them when they're 35, let them enjoy it. Um, we have a client who didn't get her final distribution until she was 80. Her mother really didn't trust her. Wow. <laughs> ruling, <laughs> ruling from the grave is what yeah, we that, call that. I mean, and, and, and that's one thing about a trust, as I like to tell clients, it, it does allow you to have more control of things after you're gone and dictate and be more creative. Like you were mentioning, Wayne, for certain things or milestones or help with certain things. It's a, it's a lot more encompassing than a will. The will is essentially just there to help designate some certain assets to how it's going to be transferred. But certainly does not avoid probate and probate's a nasty word. And most people have heard that term. So I know you've kind of touched on some of the things around it, but what are the strategies that you help people employ to avoid probate? Okay. Well, first, let me tell you what probate is. Pro probate's actually having to go down to the courthouse and see the judge and present to the judge a piece of paper that says will at the top and have the judge read it, review it, ask if anyone objects to what that paper says or does, and then ultimately rule that someone's in charge of this dead person's estate. That's simply all it is. It, it's a very short case, usually, to go down to the courthouse and have a will validated. If you don't have a will, you still have to go down to the court and do a probate. That's a probate in, 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 in testacy. Uh, doesn't roll off the tongue real well, but an intestate estate is an estate without a will. And in that situation, there's there's statutes in place that say, look, this is who inherits if you die without a will. And typically it starts with your spouse and then goes to your children and then out to extended family. Uh, so in either situation, when you just have no will or just a will, and you've got assets with titles on them or assets with account numbers, or even business interests, those are all probate assets unless you have them in the trust. So the process is just going down to the courthouse, reading the will with the judge, identifying who's been designated as the personal representative or executor, and having that person, one, agree to be bound to the court, and two, fulfilling the obligations under the will. What's the length of time that it usually takes and how costly is that so if everyone's on board there isn't a fight you can go down and or go down to the court and get all that done in under 45 days usually under 30 it's not that big of a deal that way if there's someone that objects uh or you know a family member that's upset with their older brother or younger sister being appointed as personal representative Anyone can file an objection or make an objection in the courtroom. 
And when that happens, then you're looking at four to five, maybe six months minimum to get that will probated uh, and, and moving forward. The problem with that is until you get the will probated, you can't get into mom and dad's checking account or you can't get to the insurance company and collect the, the insurance proceeds. Um, it ties up everything uh, when there's people objecting and you have to go down and do the probate. When you've got the trust in place and the accounts are in the trust, uh, you show up at the bank with the death certificate and a copy of the trust. Uh, they may look at it. They may call someone in the back office, but generally you can walk out of the bank that same day with the money you needed in hand. That's nice. I mean, the other complexity I see to this, I mean, what if, what if someone owns properties or homes in different States, is it a probate in different state or do they take care of it in, in one, if they're whatever residence they're of? Oh, that's an excellent question. Yes. If you end up with real estate in particular in different States, then you end up doing probates in different states. I've just to give you a, a really good example of this, um, two examples. I had someone die a few years ago and I was talking to the kids afterwards. And it turns out that dad had bought a slip in a marina in Miami, Florida. <laughs> and why he had a slip in Miami, no, no one really knows, but he did. Well, Maybe he was going to Epstein Island. Who knows? What it <laughs> Something was happening. Something. Uh, you know, but the, the slip was worth like $5,000. I mean, so it wasn't like a, a big deal, but it was there. And we talked to the kids and it was going to be like $3,500 to do that probate in Florida to go take care of this silly little slip in the marina. And ultimately the kids just left it. And I think a tax sale happened or the marina took it back at some point and, and they moved on. That's something we could have handled if it had been deeded into the trust before the person died. The other one that comes up occasionally that that um, most people don't really see coming are timeshares, and in particular, Disney timeshares. Uh, you'll see, especially on the East Coast, but you'll get a few out here in the West as well. People have timeshares in Orlando and uh, use them, but when they die, that's an asset that's that is set in Orlando, Florida. You have to go do the probate there. And I've actually run into there. There's one or two uh, lawyers in Orlando, Florida. The only thing they do is probate Disney timeshares. Wow. <laughs> because of, <laughs> and they know the process. They know the people at Disney. They work through it, but it still requires a court action in Florida to get that taken care of. And that's on top of any probate uh, work that you had to do in, in Salt Lake or Utah. Wow. Or a business within a business. It's it amazing is, how many things can pop up. Yeah. Well, speaking of all these little one-offs, have you ever dealt with folks who have, let's say, digital assets or the, the new age social media accounts that, that now must be dealt with uh, more frequently? What do you do there? Oh, those are more tricky. And the probate documents have really kind of morphed to allow for access to Google or Apple in particular. Uh, I just finished one last month where uh, the husband needed to get into the wife's Gmail account and get into the Google Drive that she had where all the pictures are stored. And we did have to go down and do a, a special probate on that to get those assets moved over. Um, 
and you have to put special instructions in the paperwork uh, that's already been pre-approved by Google and or Apple uh, to get that taken care of. I do hope there is some room there for some new legislation and, and some assistance, frankly, from, from the tech companies to allow people to get in and take care of that. Uh, you might recall a few years ago, the rage was all to go out and buy buy albums and, you know, you had your iTunes account and you had movies bought on it and, you know, mom would buy that account and then share it with all the kids and you could watch all the Disney movies or whatever they'd bought. And then mom dies and Apple won't let you get into that account anymore. Mm-hmm. And all the money that they spent buying those videos and things disappeared. Um, that's not as big an issue, I don't think, today. I think everyone just streams, but um, there are digital accounts still out there that are tricky and you need to raise them with your lawyer and uh, kind of work through those as part of the estate planning process. So the the resolution maybe is just to have a good plan up front to maybe share all your passwords with your spouse and your trustees or your representatives. Would that solve most of the issue? Or is that still illegal action? I'm not going to say it doesn't happen. Uh, And most most older people have to write down their list. They have a list of passwords somewhere, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and they might have the little little safe box on their computer with all their passwords saved into it. (laughs) I would definitely let your kids know uh, how to get into that or where to access those. Because there's information in there that you need, right? And even your next tax return is going to need some of that information. Yeah. And and it's helpful. I can't really advocate, though, in a podcast that you know your parents' account numbers <laughs> and PIN numbers at the bank and that you start accessing their account when they've died. Uh, yeah, that's probably gonna... an, a no-no. <laughs> but there's there has to be a way to facilitate that because, I mean, obviously people die. And this is a pretty big issue. So there needs to be, like you said, something that's legislated, provides legal course of action. Yeah, no, certainly with the tech companies, there's something that needs to happen. There's enough people with that. With the banks, though, you need to have the you either have the trust in place or you have beneficiaries designated on accounts so that people can get in and access those accounts when when they when you die. Excuse me, we're almost in the home stretch for the episode. But before we cross the finish line, I just want you to know that you can contact Billy and his team at www.petersonws.com or by visiting the show notes. Now, back to harnessing your wealth. So what we're hearing is do your planning before you die, right? Ideally, ideally, yep, yes. Get it. So or let's say- yeah, Plan when you die. A plan after you die, that doesn't work out <laughs> yeah. so well. Yeah, that's that's a little tough. But let, let's say someone meets with you. We get all these documents put together. We've got a solid estate plan, will, and trust. And I know there's a few more documents we're going to talk about in a in a minute here. But well, now what do I do? Like, I've got my trust, right? So I, I'm set. Or is there a next step that people need to make sure they they take care of? So when you walk out of my door with a new trust in hand, hopefully you've got your trust funded. I mean, that's the big the big game, right, is making sure your trust is funded with your assets. Uh, Typically, that requires a deed being recorded, putting your house or any real estate that you have into the trust, and we'll help you with that. Uh, Then the next big asset typically is is brokerage accounts, you know, the money you guys are handling. And, And I'll work with 
the folks there in your office, Maggie's been great over the years. You know, we'll send her a copy of the trust. She'll take and put all the accounts that we, you know, we assign to the trust into it to make sure that's taken care of. Uh, I tend to, I try to give really good instruction to each of my clients on, you know, all right, you've got assets down at XYZ Bank. You need to go down there and talk to the teller and put the trust on as a, as a beneficiary. It's not hard. Uh, it takes five minutes. They all know what, when you go into the bank and you talk to the manager or even the teller, they're going to know what that is mm -hmm. and, and be able to get that taken care of. So there's a little bit of post execution planning that needs to be done typically. Uh, typically that's limited to the accounts, uh, sometimes life insurance as well. Mm -hmm. um, but working also with, with, with the financial advisor where the accounts are set, that helps. And we get the, uh, get the assets moved over to the trust so that there isn't, there isn't a big issue. The, yeah. the hard part is though, you know, 10 years down the road and, you know, around here in particular, you know, someone will go buy a condo in St. George and for the winter. And, you know, we find out later that that condo wasn't put in the trust when they closed and um, when it should have been, uh, you know, and hopefully it, it occasionally happens that, a client will call me and they'll say, Hey, we're at the title company. Uh, we're going to buy a house in St. George. Right. And should we put it in the trust? Well, yes, you should put it in the trust. Can you send me the trust? You know, and inevitably <laughs> they went to the, the title company without the trust in hand. And we facilitate that every time, right? If, if you're there at the title company or even at the bank and you need a copy of a document, uh, we can generally, generally can get that to you you know, right away so that you can get that business taken care of. Yeah. I think retitling is huge because oftentimes people will bring in their old estate documents and they'll have a schedule a of assets and they're yeah. like, Oh, this covers everything. We're like, eh, let's see your statement. Well, this mm -hmm. is a joint account. It's not a trust account. Like, you know, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter that it's listed in a schedule a, you need to go to those institutions and, and retitle accounts. Retitle and, it, yeah. yeah I, I think that's huge. And people will miss that sometimes. And people even assume that, their trust owns their IRA. And <laughs> we have to educate clients on that as well, that IRAs cannot be owned by a trust. The trust could obviously be named as the beneficiary somewhere down the line, but oftentimes we don't even recommend that due to the distribution rules that are in place. And that's probably a topic for another conversation. But there are a lot of different strategies. There are many, many complex and complicated strategies. The higher the net worth, the more those become important to know about and consider and talk to your state attorney. Wayne, you've dealt with a number of them, everything from the the grantor retained annuity trust to the, the irrevocable life insurance trust. Uh, the new th issues now we're talking about uh, different types of spousal trusts and qualified terminable interest trusts. And are, are there any that you feel are kind of the most common, the might go-to types of trust to help folks who are in a higher tax bracket avoid estate tax and not a high tax bracket, but a higher taxable estate category? Sure. Uh, so a lot of times you'll see, especially with people with, with insurance, if you've got life insurance and you've got a large estate, uh, there's probably an issue there with that insurance coming into your estate. Uh, one of the sales pitches on buying a lot of insurance is that it's estate tax free or you don't have to pay taxes on it. 
what they don't tell you though is that if you add that to your estate at the end of the day when the irs is counting up all the pennies uh if that life insurance you know puts you over the 12 million dollar mark into death tax country you're going to pay taxes on that life insurance uh, we'll use what they call is an islet or an irrevocable life insurance trust to move that life insurance out of your estate so it's not a counted asset uh, other times we'll use um, what they call a defective grantor trust, or we'll just set up a, an asset protection trust, uh, typically out of state, uh, that will hold assets that you really think are going to appreciate greatly. Uh, that becomes kind of its own entity and has its own, it's, it's separate, right? You lose a little bit of control on that, but it does grow and it stays outside of your estate. Uh, for people with really high net worth, I'm talking, maybe we start talking at 15 million, but really we're talking 20, 30, $40 million estates. And uh, we start looking at the more exotic asset protection trusts or the defective grantor trusts uh, that will help freeze the value of the estate and let some assets grow outside of the estate to avoid debt tax. You say outside of the estate, but ultimately it, it will end up in the heir's hands, correct? Right. But what we're trying to do is minimize the estate tax, the death tax. Exactly. Yeah. So when the IRS looks at it, it doesn't look like it's in your estate, but that doesn't mean it doesn't go to your children uh, at some point or your grandchildren uh, sure. down the road. Keep it sure. away from the IRS. I think that's everyone's goal <laughs> if possible. Well, so, I think charitable planning comes into this conversation too, in a big way. If if someone is charitably inclined, I mean, there's some great tools like a donor advised fund where you could um, really mitigate some some money going into the IRS's hands. Sure, especially, and I like the the, the donor advised fund or the DAF. You'll hear it called. Uh, it gets used quite often when you've got a, a business owner who's getting ready to sell, uh, because there's some real tax planning that can be put in place. Uh, if you have that DAF set up and if you're charitably inclined uh, to give some of that money to, to charity down the road, DAFs. You're talking about income tax planning in the year of the sale, correct? So it in, exactly. helps you from an income tax standpoint when you contribute dollars to it on that year, in that year. And then it could also potentially help your estate from an estate tax standpoint. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, if I've got a client that I know is looking at, at an exit strategy and they're probably going to be selling the business in the next two to three years, as opposed to, you know, letting kids inherit it, we start talking about uh, DAFs in particular or, you know, some kind of a charitable remainder trust, perhaps. Very good. Do you think that in Congress right now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on the spot a little bit, Wayne, I want you to get... Give us some of your predictions, some of the things that you have been hearing. I think it, like a lot of the tax law and the estate tax, definitely fits in this category. It gets used as a pawn. You know, it, it's like the it's the first soldier that dies whenever there's an argument. Mm -hmm. uh, they know they got to touch the estate tax every once in a while. They know they got to come up with some kind of a new taxing strategy every once in a while. And someone will float it. And if you've been around long enough, you know, it's in some years, the Democrats want to raise the estate tax and in other years, the Republicans want to raise it. And it just depends on which way the wind's blowing that year and who's in charge. Uh, it, it keeps us busy because the estate tax will change. 
and and every time it changes, you know, we're worried about trying to get things moved. I know last year, for example, there was a really big fear that Biden was going to be able to push through a big tax change. And we sold a lot of businesses last year because people were worried that if they got into 2023, uh, the tax rates would be a lot higher if they decided to sell their businesses. It pushed a lot of business, especially in the third quarter. By the time the fourth quarter came around and the election came through, it became clear that that tax raise wasn't going to happen with the Republicans in the House. And so everything flipped and a lot of deals died uh, that weren't there. Yeah, we've we've got the estate tax. There's going to be some changes happening here in the next couple of years unless Congress acts. And I wouldn't be at all surprised to see people start, you know, talking, especially with the elections coming up in two years. The candidates will take different positions on it and it'll get you know, batted back and forth. And I assume that they'll they'll do something. They have to do something in the next couple of years because the law radically changes. But they will uh, they'll come up with a new norm for the next four to eight or <laughs> ten years. Well, we see it quite often. It is like you said, it's a political game and and they use that a lot in just conversation, try to get political opinion on their side, this tax, that tax. I mean, everyone, we're, we're taxed in so many different ways. The conversation can change just in what type of, ta- type of tax you're talking about. And I, I think one of the pushes for the folks that are trying to float this consumption tax is just to simplify everything. The tax code has gotten completely out of hand. Uh, I don't even know how many pages it is now, but it's a monster. And just trying to understand what you can and can't do with regards to reporting income and how to potentially find deductions and what's available out there and what's been what's been eliminated. So it does have some appeal from the standpoint of simplification. I don't know what it looks like when it all is boiled down. It does sound good on in theory that the folks that are buying the most goods and services obviously pay more in tax than the ones who aren't buying those goods and services. So it's just a conversation. I think it's it's probably a long shot that, that ever gets passed, but I do know that the tax issues always come up when in the third year of an election. And the estate tax is as it is now, it's pretty high. Most people don't find themselves in this in a taxable estate with the current tax law. But we've been through so many different cycles and seen these things raised and lowered so many times that uh, yeah. Logic will tell you that at some point, a lot more folks are going to be subject to the estate tax. Do you agree with that? I, I do think that at, at some point, if there's if the tax law is not addressed, they, there will be a point here at the end of this decade where there'll be a lot of people that find themselves back in an estate tax. Right, right now, Billy, just to kind of give a little perspective to it, you really don't have to start worrying about the death tax until you get to almost $26 million. Yeah, $13 million a person. And, and this brings up a point that a lot of people don't understand. If you did your estate planning 10 or 15 years ago, uh, you did so when the estate tax or the death tax uh, started to apply at five or $6 million. And that had a lot of people in it. There were a lot of people at that time who had taxable estates. And the trusts that were drafted for him at that point uh, had a lot of tax planning in them. Typically, you would see what they call an AB trust or a marital and a family trust. 
if your trust says that when one when the first spouse dies, it splits into two separate trusts, you've got an AB trust. And that trust was designed to uh, help capture the first the first dead uh, spouse, their their marital deduction or their I mean their estate plan, their estate tax deduction. So what's changed about that now is that you might have had an estate at five million dollars that was taxable ten or fifteen years ago, but that estate's nowhere worth nowhere near worth twenty six million dollars today. And what you end up with is too much trust. And a lot of people that I see that have 10, 15-year-old trusts have too much trust. And the result of that will be that they don't really like the AB structure when they died. It works if you're trying to save on estate tax planning or estate planning. You, you get past the inconveniences of it. But when you don't have a death tax issue, you don't really want to do the death tax planning. And I find that a lot of trusts that are older will have the death tax planning and they don't need it. Mm. That's a good point. Uh, things that are written for a certain scenario that never materialize or that change. So that would just require a quick amendment or a change to it, right? Typically, yeah. And the the advantage of it is that the surviving spouse, you know, the widow or the widower will be a whole lot happier if the trust is doing what they really needed to do uh, mm -hmm. after the first spouse dies. Hey, Wayne. Uh, real, real quick here. I know we're kind of running up on, on time, but we've talked will, we've talked trust. What other documents should be in a good estate plan? Oh yeah. Typically what I'll, in, I'll include in an estate plan is some kind of a financial power of appointment attorney. Uh, there's lots of different kinds of financial powers of attorney and they, they do different things, but some kind of a financial power of attorney is, is really helpful. And I'll give you the example that really has come up you know most recently in the last couple of years we ran into situations where people would unfortunately get covid right and then in the early days uh, before the treatments really kicked in people would get intubated they would be put in a coma and they'd be intubated for 30 days and your chances were you know maybe 50 50 you were going to come out of that a lot and that and that disease you know attacked everyone it didn't it wasn't discriminating, right? It just picked on whoever it wanted to pick on. And what would happen is people would call me and say, you know, Joe got sick over the weekend. It's Monday morning. They're going to intubate him. And he still got accounts out there in his name, right? Or he just bought property in, in Tooele or whatever. The power of attorney then would help us move those assets into the trust. We've basically got 30 days, right? A 30-day window to get his estate cleaned up because we don't know if he's going to survive that. And that was the fear, right? At the time, mm -hmm. fortunately, most of my clients came through it, but if you didn't, and you know, if you've got that good power of a uh, attorney in place, it dovetails with the trust and helps us get everything taken care of in case you don't come out of that, you know, that, that illness. The other uh, document that you typically will see in Utah, at least is a healthcare directive. In other states, you'll see a medical power of attorney and a living mm -hmm. will. Uh, Utah's combined them into, into one document. That's your pull the plug document, right? If you're mm -hmm. brain dead and, and you're not really ever going to wake up again, um, the, this is the document that authorizes typically someone in your family uh, to work with the doctors and basically pull the plugs, let, let you die peacefully. Mm -hmm. um, 
in addition to the powers of attorney for healthcare and, and finances, uh, again, you'll see deeds, you'll see transfer documents. If you've got LLCs in your estate, uh, there might be some stock certificates that are needed to, to move you know, corporate assets into the trust. Beneficiary designation forms for life insurance tend to show up once in a while. A lot more of that's done online. Um, I think that that's the majority yeah. of them. Making sure your IRA beneficiaries are up to date too. Be the other exactly. one. Yep. Yeah. Very good. Eliminating all these nasty creditors and predators from these estates. So good conversation. We appreciate all the information, Wayne. I know this is a one of those discussions that very few people really want to have, but I think it's so important for everybody to know something about. So thanks for your insights and for joining us for this podcast show today. I wanted to give a quick shout for the next session or next show. We will have super smart woman, good friend of ours, Janet Van Bever, who is the director of AQHA racing division. We're going to have her join us to talk a lot about the industry in a little more detail. So again, listeners out there, thanks for joining us past this show around to your friends and colleagues and Please reach out if there's a topic that you're interested in and would like to have us speak about. Until next time, you take care out there. Thank you for listening to Harnessing Your Wealth with Billy Peterson. Before we declare the race official, please click the follow button so you can be notified when new episodes become available. For more information about today's show, please check out the show notes. Visit our website at www.petersonws.com or give us a call at 801-475-4002. Once again, thank you for listening. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Peterson Wealth Services. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.